All right, guys, welcome to our first installment of our Nightfall Full Moon series, where we talk to the creators of one of the most epic Batman storylines of all time about werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were lucky enough to sit down with some of comics' coolest creators and talk about one of our favorite creatures. First up, we have Chuck Dixon, the writer of the Nightfall saga. Uh, we get to talk to him about two movies. Uh, actually a couple movies, but we talked to him about The Howling and The Werewolf, which we had not seen until this episode, and it is worth watching. And let us know what you think on our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at LaunchpadPod, and check out our website, launchpadpod.com. Now let's get on with the show. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All right, welcome to the Launchpad Podcast. I'm Aaron. I'm Matt. And Matt, we have a special guest in the Launchpad today. Who do we got? We have Mr. Chuck Dixon, comic book royalty. Mr. Dixon, I am a huge comic book fan now, but growing up, I only read things here and there. But I would say, like, no joke, 50% of what I read was stuff that you wrote. No, no, that's not an exaggeration. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I get that, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a couple of uh, a couple of pretty notable books. Uh, you did some Mark Spector stuff back in the day. You did uh, some other stuff for uh, companies that were other than the big two. But I would think you're most well known for your Punisher stuff over at Marvel and then your Batman and Robin stuff at DC, specifically Nightfall. I mean, we can cut to the chase. He helped create Bane. He wrote Nightfall. <laughs> Batman breaking his back. I mean, it's one of the most iconic Batman arcs ever. Chuck, d when you were writing this, did you know that's what they were trying to do is make this epic moment? Well, that was the plan. I mean, Denny O'Neill told us this wasn't going to just be a stunt or a gimmick. This was going to be an unforgettable comic book epic lasting two years. So you you are the man who broke Batman's back. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and you know, and not only that, yeah, I I was in and out of Nightfall, just picking up whichever covers looked cool, whichever covers I could get. But I actually back then I read a lot of your Robin stuff. I just happened to pick up more of that, specifically Joker's Wild. Yeah, yeah, Robin was my entree into the Batman universe. Uh, Denny O'Neill hired me based on my work on a title called Airboy at Eclipse because he he liked how I wrote an adolescent. So uh, he thought he'd give me a shot at Robin, and we talked it over and agreed that uh, maybe I was a good fit. Turned out. I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I think of, of, of all the Robins in there have really been so many when you think about the entire Bat universe. But Tim Drake is, I think, one of the coolest and it, I guess the most relatable and I guess the most fleshed out. And I think a lot of that is because of the series that you did. Is there something about Tim Drake as a specific character, as opposed to Dick Grayson, as opposed to Jason Todd, as opposed to Carrie, as opposed to anybody that 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 specific Robin spoke to you or you, you got along well with that Robin? Well, I mean, I ran off the basis of uh, Alan Grant did, did quite a bit of work on Tim Drake, you know, leading up to me getting involved. Right. And then I, I built on what he did. But uh, we were all pretty much in agreement that we wanted him to be the anti Jason Todd. We wanted him to be as different from Jason Todd as we could make him. Right. And uh, we worked very hard to make him relatable. And one of those things was to give him uh, something that's not typical in the Batman universe, which is an element of doubt in himself. Uh, and I think that made readers respond to him and worry that will he succeed as Robin? 
you know, they love him as Tim Drake, but would he be a good Robin? And he was worried about that himself. So they sort of shared this this concern with the readers. <laughs> it it's a, it really is a great. Uh, it really is a great arc. If you guys haven't checked it out, and you wrote quite a few issues of Robin back in the day, right? Yeah, I wrote three miniseries and then a hundred issues and a bunch of annuals and specials and year ones. And yeah, I gotta say, in addition to Tim Drake, I'm actually a little late in the game. I'm reading some of the stuff right now. I'm reading some of the stuff that takes place after No Man's Land, specifically the death of Stephanie Brown, and she was a really great character. And like I said, I didn't read that back then, but. Wow, what a cool and interesting arc. And you were one of the creators of, of Stephanie Brown as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tom Lyle and I first introduced her in an arc in uh, Detective Comics. And she was only supposed to be a plot device, but readers fell in love with her. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a love affair that lasts because it's now, I don't know how many years later. And I'm, I'm now I'm starting. Now I got a little crush on Stephanie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we all? So, I mean, you, you did this incredible work with Batman. I mean, one of the most prolific writers for the Batman series, that whole era, you wrote so many big books, but you also got to do some Marvel stuff. And one of the ones that we love is the Punisher. And you got to do Punisher Kingdom Gone and some Punisher War Journal stuff. What was it like writing for a character that's kind of an anti-character? Like he's very, this big stoic, badass, uh, just just violent guy. What was it like taking over that title and, and bringing your own spin to it? Well, I, I like the Punisher very much. He's one of the few characters that I campaigned to work on. Awesome. Uh, I wasn't I wasn't simply assigned. And uh, I, I, I like the primal elements and I like the fact that he's every negative male stereotype all in one character. <laughs> yeah. you know, big he's, muscles, he's a, big guns, big anger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's a he's a bit of a slob and, you know, all that all that stuff. And he's just a hard guy to get along with. <laughs> so um, was he a hard yeah, guy I, to write then? Not for me. He was always the easiest character. He's the only character that I still think of stories for, even though I'm not paid to do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, he's very much a, a, a response character, a reactionary character. And you, and you see things in the news and you go, wow, Frank Castle would be there. Right? He would be in the middle of all of that. Oh, man, so. that's so cool. Yeah, we love the Punisher. And we were just like <laughs> before we were talking to you, Matt and I were just having this like tiff about the Punisher and which Punisher movie was the best. And it's like, why is it so hard to make a Punisher movie? I mean, like the comics have always nailed it. And these right. movies just have a tough time finding that character. or They make him too much of a character and they just don't give you enough Punisher. The one trope they seem to miss is he's not a detective. He doesn't solve mysteries. Mm. He's, he's not even a hunter. He's not even a predator. He just kills the first criminal he meets. I mean, the first person that crosses the line. And, and that's, I think, is what they get wrong. It's, it's the same reason they so often get Westerns wrong. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're primal and simple and elegant and just leave it alone. Just do that. Huh. Well, it's interesting you say that because you're talking about hunting and you wrote, uh, again, one of the books that I read as a kid, you wrote Batman vs. Predator 3. And now we have done a couple episodes on this show about the Predator, specifically about fighting. Yeah. And we were kind of talking about what it would be like if he fought different superheroes. And we came up with the conundrum of, would a Predator understand and respect a superhero's secret identity? And me and Aaron were kind of talking, and I don't know that either of us really came down on a specific side, but we were wondering if, I think it was Daredevil is what prompted the idea, is if Predator was hunting Daredevil, would he understand that Matt Murdock was a device that would protect the people around him from, you know, collateral damage? And would the, would the Predator understand that, and would the Predator um, kind of respect that and only hunt daredevil when he was daredevil and 
I brought up the there's a, a scene in Batman versus Predator three where Tim Drake is at the movies at the drive in theater and a younger Predator is stalking him and goes after him. Tim Drake realizes in time because of a call from Alfred where Alfred specifically says your identity means nothing. Your secret identity means nothing to him. And Tim Drake tries to escape and the Predator pursues. So we kind of want to get it straight from the horse's mouth. What do you what do you think about that? Would a Predator understand the concept? And if he did, would he respect the secret identity, do you think? I, I think the Predator would understand it and would see it as an advantage when they're not in costume, when they're not in character. They're vulnerable, which, you know, obviously I played on. Also, for the Predator, any personal concerns his victims have are going to be meaningless uh, meaningless posthumously. Because <laughs> they think they're going to kill them. So who the hell cares who Superman is if the Predator just killed him? So. Sure, sure. Ah, that's pretty interesting. And I got to tell you, um, <laughs> we've been talking for a couple minutes now. We could easily talk to you about any one of these things you've worked on for a long time but that's not yeah, what we're here we're, to talk about we're not we're not going to talk batman for hours no we're not we going to talk predator for hours no we could what are we going to talk about Rudy? i'll tell you what if, if if mr dixon if you behave yourself maybe we can have you come back on another time and talk some more <laughs> comics but okay i, I gotta tell try, you i'll try to be good <laughs> i gotta tell you one of the hardest things i've ever had to do for this podcast i did last night and that was to stop reading punisher comics to watch a werewolf movie yeah, <laughs> because uh, I've been in communication with Mr. Dixon for a month or two now, and he actually seems to be a pretty big horror and specifically creature film buff. So we wanted to talk about some werewolf stuff. And uh, I just got kind of the bitten by the Dixon bug the last couple weeks. And I've been reading stuff, watching stuff. And last night I just got wrapped up in Warzone again and I was halfway through and I was like, dude, you're not even really going to focus on this tomorrow. Go watch a werewolf movie. So um Let's jump into it. When when we reached out to you, we were talking about different things we might be able to to discuss with you. And you you were on werewolves. What do you think about some werewolves? Why why do werewolves resonate with you? Well, when I was a kid, I, I either wanted to be Batman or I wanted to be the Wolfman. I mean, <laughs> okay, specifically Lon Chaney. Everybody was afraid of him, which was cool. He only had to be the Wolfman a few nights out of the month, which seemed convenient. You know, you could work your schedule around that. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing, oddly, was. I love the way Lon Chaney dressed when he was just Lawrence Talbot. Yes. I, I thought his sense of style, I mean, especially <laughs> in Abbott Costello and Frankenstein, that, that, I want to have that suit and that tie. I mean, there's a light tie and a, and a dark shirt and that sort of heavy tweed. I, that, the guy was, uh, you know, he was styling when he wasn't all covered with fur. He, you're right. So. He did have a certain swagger. He did, as, as, as a man, not even as the wolf, he did kind of just have this like, and it was a different charm than a lot of leading men at the time and I think that's evidenced if you watch the original Wolfman, he hits on this chick by essentially letting her know he was spying on her and she digs it. And I'm like, wow, that that takes quite a guy, right? <laughs> yeah, to make that pay off. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I love the universal monsters. I'm, I'm obsessed with them. I, I grew up on them. And, and the Wolfman was always a great one. And it has it, it really set up all the tropes for the werewolf sort of mythos that would come for years, even though it wasn't necessarily the first werewolf movie that, that belongs to werewolf of London. Um, but the, the one with Lon Chaney had like the creepy gypsy cursing him mm -hmm. and the, 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 the guy in, you know, fish out of water in a different part of part of the world who's, who right. gets cursed. And that really became sort of a, a staple for a lot of these werewolf movies where you have, the the jeep the gypsy witch and you have the curse and you have the full moon and you have 
this guy far from home dealing with all this stuff. And it was fascinating. And, and you know, the transformation was, was you know, groundbreaking at the time, even though we didn't yeah. get to see his face. <laughs> yeah, and for, you, know, a lot of, I, you know, a lot of people know that transformation scene where, yeah. where Lon Chaney's face slowly dissolves into the werewolf, but that actually didn't happen in the first one. That happened, at least for the first time it happened, was in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. In the original Wolfman, we just see his feet do that transformation, but yeah. still... It's so incredible. And then it cuts to him stalking in the forest. And you see, you know, Lon Chaney is walking on his toes to make his foot look more like a wolf foot. It actually is. It's a super effective transition. But what about what about werewolves, aside from the fact that they could kind of make their own schedule? What what <laughs> what appealed to you as a monster? Why that monster as opposed to the gill man or uh, a vampire? What 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 spoke to you, Mr. Dixon? Well, well, when I was a kid, you know, and I would see like the early show or the late show, because that's where you watch these things, or you go to a Saturday matinee and see them, you were waiting for the monster. You know the feeling. It was probably the same when you were a kid. You're watching the movie and the boring adults are talking and like, where's the monster? <laughs> When's the monster going to show up? And if the monster, when the monster shows up, is there going to be enough monster? Yeah, and, sure. And we, we used to literally chant at Saturday matinees, where's the monster? Where's the monster? But when the werewolf shows up, he's different than any other monster because all bets are off. He's chaos. Right. Incarnate. You know, you got Frankenstein, he's lumbering around. You got Creature from Black Boon, he's swimming around. But the Wolfman shows up, people are getting killed. The the hunters come out, the hounds come out, they're running through the woods, everybody's in danger. You never know where the guy is. You know, it's total chaos. And I think that's what I like. And also they would give the werewolf a lot of screen time. That yeah. that that was the big thing to me. I mean, almost like in my mind at a stopwatch. How much werewolf am I getting in this movie? <laughs> Do you think that the, the exact points that you're illustrating, do you think that those work against werewolves in film because they're so drastically different, because they're so bestial, and because they're so vicious and ferocious, it's hard to show that well? Is that why you... Well, Aaron and I often talk about why there aren't more werewolf movies. Do you think that that might be why the wolfman or the werewolf is kind of an understated monster as far as the, the amount of movies that are made about him? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, you know, everybody loves werewolves. I mean, to some extent, um, you know, it, it, but I think, um, again, it comes down to the people who make these things, the gatekeepers and what they think about werewolves. Let's face it. There's a lot of bad werewolf movies, too. Sure, so, sure. You know, people that simply don't understand what they're doing or or ones that simply repeat the same story over and over again. Well, I think I think the biggest problem is people feel, well, I think they're too expensive. I think to get a good werewolf, people think they need to spend a lot of money, so that scares off a lot of the powers that be who make movies. One, two, I think people get bogged down in the mythos and they're like, "Well, we have to stick to it and I don't really like how it opens up a story. We got to get him to this gypsy, we got to get him cursed." And it's like, "Well, as we're going to talk about today, there's a couple movies that didn't even need a curse." And there's a lot of movies that's like we're able to shy away from that and actually, I think, serve the story better. I don't think it matters how they get to be this werewolf. I think it matters that we see it, that it's engaging and that the characters, when they're not werewolves, are interesting. Right. Right. I mean, there's a there's a great Robert E. Howard story about a werewolf, the guy that wrote created Conan. And uh, basically, it's a bunch of people, Europeans trapped by a, a cannibal tribe in Africa, on an island in Africa. And one of the Europeans trapped inside is a werewolf. So what? you have this climactic scene of this werewolf standing alone against like thousands of like Zulu warriors in this epic battle. And, I mean, you know, 
I mean, that's thinking outside the box. I wish you guys could all see Aaron's face right now. He's like, <laughs> he's practically drooling. Is that a, a like a prose novel or is that a comic or is that a movie? It was like a novella uh, written back in the 30s. Wow. That's... And it's called like it's called like Hour of the Wolf or something like that. I mean, it's in it's in one of the Robert E. Howard anthology. Wolf's Head might be called. I can't remember. It might be called Wolf's Head. We'll uh, do a little research on that. Uh, Robert that e. sounds Howard. like, yeah, we would read the hell out of that, right? Oh, I would read yeah. the hell out of that. Like, that's so cool. Well, one of the ones that we wanted to bring up is The Werewolf from 1956. It was at your suggestion. And yeah. uh, I hadn't seen it before. And watching it, it was pretty awesome. But we, we both did our homework and watched this thing. And it was pretty awesome because, like we were mentioning earlier, it's not a curse that makes this guy a werewolf. It's science and kind of Adam Age fear and... and Makes for a pretty cool story. What was your introduction to this? Well, I saw it all. Every I lived in Philadelphia when I was a kid, and every year in, in October they would have uh, Science Fiction Week on the early show. Oh, and yeah. And they they showed the werewolf, and it was the first time I saw it. Actually, it's the last time I saw it until I rewatched it this week for this show. Nice. But 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 it's weird. After all this time, everything I liked about it as a kid, I liked about it as an adult. So. Uh, you know, you see a movie when you're a kid and then you see it as an adult. And you go, wow, well, I was an idiot for liking this. But I saw this one. I said, no, I was a pretty sharp kid for liking this movie. What are some of the things that young Chuck Dixon and present day Chuck Dixon are, are into about the werewolf 1956? Well, it 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 takes place. It took place in a world I recognized. You know, uh, it takes place. It's almost filmed like a film noir movie. It's like yes. ultra realistic. It takes place in this um you know, one horse mountain town, probably in Northern California, I assume. And um, everything about it looked real. It takes place in bars and restaurants and you know, on streets and, and, you know, in homes that you know, were all things I was familiar with because, you know, 1956 wasn't that far from when I was watching it the first time. So, um, you know, that and, and, and the way it was shot, the, the, the uh, Fred F. Sears, the guy who directed it, he always went for a real naturalistic acting style. Even though there's a lot of melodrama in it, but but in a lot of the scenes, people are just acting like more like real people than you usually see in these things, especially in the 50s. And, um, you know, I responded to that as well. I mean, it all seemed like it could be happening is the point I'm making. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it really did feel real. And that was something I really liked is that it, it, it was filmed in Big Bear. You were right about Northern California, Mountain Town. OK, um, it was filmed in Big Bear. And. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about it is that I loved that the sheriffs and the police officers and the law enforcement at first were like, well, let's try and help this guy. Mm. That was their yeah. first yeah. thing. Yeah. Let's try and help this guy. And then when he started killing more people, they're like, well, we tried. Now now, now we got to do the thing. <laughs> but I like that, that, that they were real people and not just, I think a lot of times, especially in monster movies, the authorities are just these reactionary, you know, let's go, let's go get torches and kill this guy immediately. Yeah, I, uh, another aspect I liked about it was that it had bad guys. Yeah, usually yes. the, the werewolf's the bad guy, and this one had bad guys, and they get their comeuppance, you know, at the claws of the werewolf. And, and, that, and when I was a kid, that I thought that was so freaking awesome. When they go in that jail cell and turn yes. him over, and, and he's, he's transformed. Yeah, yeah, that is a hell of a scene. That's a hell of a scene. And you know, one thing that I think works for this movie more than the the rest, and you think we're thinking 1956. You know, especially America, we're cranking out horror and sci-fi movies at this point. And a lot of them are dime a dozen and a lot of them are carbon copies of each other. This is really unique because I feel like, first of all, the pacing is incredible. Yeah. The movie just starts. Starts with this guy. You know something's weird. He kind of stumbles out of a bar. Some guy tries to roll him in an alley and you hear this brutal kill. 
yeah. and you know, you know, you know by the title of the movie what's happening. You don't see it, but it's super effective. And then I think the rest of the movie, the best way that I can explain it is it's kind of like the movie The Fugitive, but if The Fugitive was a lycanthrope, right? Right, and, right. And it, it really doesn't let up. And it's, it's exactly what you said before, Mr. Dixon, about how all of us, whether we're kids or adults, we watch these movies, we're waiting for the boring human talking to stop and the werewolf action to start. This movie, even the boring human talking stuff, is really fast, really to the point. And like Aaron said, it kind of humanizes the characters, both werewolves and humans alike. And again, like you said, the werewolf is not really the heavy in this, at least not until the third reel. It really is these other people trying to track him. It's it's really, really good. If you guys haven't seen this, check it out. The Werewolf, 1956. It's just not your typical werewolf movie, right? Yeah, I, I really like the gimmicks they did in it, too. I mean, we get on the poster. If you look up this poster, it's like uh, scientists made man into beast and you will see it happen on screen. Like that's a big <laughs> selling point. And it's it's a pretty solid effect. I mean, it's just cross dissolves, but it looks pretty cool. But do you guys remember any of the other gimmicks in the movie that they used for like werewolf transformation bits that were pretty cool? There was a cool scene where they're, the, the hunters and the humans are following the tracks. And as they're in the snow, there's like wolf print, wolf print, wolf right. print, human print, human print, human print. Yep. And it's like you, I knew from the beginning of that shot what was going to happen. But what a cool way to show that. And again, what, a, what a, a good way to not slow it down by explaining. This movie doesn't also have a lot of the old like, well, I don't know what this could be. What is it some sort of animal? They're like, no, this is some sort of creature that's killing these people. We got to stop it. Yeah. The doctor pretty quickly is like, I think this is a werewolf. Yeah. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> you're like, well, that cuts a lot of bullshit out of this. So uh, thanks, dude. <laughs> well, let's 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 think of it this way, too. Mr. Dixon, you said that you just recently watched this movie as well, right? Yeah. Do you think that this movie holds up over time? It's now, you know, 60 something years old. Was it as you said it was as effective? Do you think do you think that like a, a modern day crowds would 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 relate to and understand this movie? Well, you could watch it as an artifact. Certainly, it's fascinating to watch as you know this little snapshot of you know of a better shoestring budget horror film from the fifties. It's also short, which helps. Sure, yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah. It's very it's very compact, but it is an interesting approach to the genre. You can watch it from that angle. You know, I don't know how frightening it would be to modern day audiences. Sure, um, sure. You know, it wasn't even frightening to me as a kid because I just wanted to see the werewolf. I wasn't afraid of him. I just wanted to see him. And, and as much werewolf as I could see, I was happy. Yeah. But, um, but you know, there's it's, there's a lot of neat stuff in it. You talked about the transformation of the footprints. You know, watching it as an adult, they're following along and they're following shoe prints through the snow and then they change the wolf tracks, right? And and as an adult, I'm going, well, where are his shoes? Where did he <laughs> right. stop and take off his shoes? Then they have this scene that's really effective of the two guys talking and the camera moves over and you see his shoes. He took his shoes off and hid them under this thing. And he, and later in the film goes back and gets them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I love it when they figure out logistics like that in a film, even when it's a little bit ludicrous. It's like, at least they thought about these details. Yeah. They knew, they knew somebody would be saying, Hey, 50 years down the line, we need to explain this. So <laughs> some guys on a podcast can make sense of it. And I got to say, you said that it was a low budget and clearly again, a lot yeah. of them in the fifties were, but We've already discussed how difficult it can be to show werewolves and especially the wolf and the transformation in the medium of film. But this one does, you know, an old trick and an old treat of cinema where they do the killing or they do the brutal stuff off camera. And this is definitely, in my opinion, and I feel like I'm an authority on this. I feel like this is one of the best case scenarios of like, 
it's better to let the audience imagine than to show it because there's two or three really brutal sounding kills that happen just off screen. And it's not like they would do it today. If they did that today, blood would shoot back and splatter the walls and stuff. It's not like that. It's just sound and the ferociousness of the actors leaving the screen, leaving the, the, the frame. It really is, I think, probably the most, in my opinion, I think it's the most effective thing in the movie. Well, and then they have other characters discover the bodies and yes. say, oh, man, what ripped out his throat, throat like yeah. that? And like, you know, oh, poor guys. Nobody wants to go like that. Like, they comment on how messed up it is. And I think that's a pretty cool, again, another way to enforce how messed up it is. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually quite grisly because when he takes yeah. on the guy in the alley, all it is is a low angle shot of their feet. You know, yes. as the guy under yes. him is struggling and basically the werewolf's feet are, you know, trying to get purchased. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and the sound effects where he's obviously, this guy's being clawed. He's obviously losing blood from the sound effects. He's yeah. gurgling sounds. And then you, you can hear him being basically gnawed on, which is really effective. And then in the jail cell sequence, when he takes on the one guy, and he, then he moves over to finish the other guy off to make sure he's gone. Oh. And no blood, no nothing, but man, highly effective. And like you said, they would have shown a huge blood splatter going up the wall or something. And, it, you know, really, in a film like this, it wasn't necessary. Your mind did the rest. Well, and as we mentioned, this was the, what, what the plot tells you is that this, the guy who is the werewolf, he was a businessman on a trip. He crashed his car and these scientists found him, these doctors who have been doing these atomic age experiments with radiation. They've kidnapped this guy. They have turned him into a werewolf using some undisclosed technology and let him loose or he's escaped and they're trying to hunt him down throughout the movie. But we see them in their laboratory and they have these dogs in cages and cats in cages and animals. And my wife who watched the film with me was like, oh, those cages are too small for that dog. She was like really (laughs) upset by this. And then the doctor starts going, giving treats to the animals and he gives one to one cat and starts to give one to another cat and then drops it. And the rest of the scene, the cat's like, whoa, hey, 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 guy, guy, you dropped my treat. What about me? That guy got one. Where's my treat, dude? And he's so perturbed, like reaching for the doctor, like, hey, pay attention to me, dude. Where's my treat? It was like, I was how, like, that was one of those incidental moments that made me laugh so hard. (laughs) Well, their their discussion in the lab is really disturbing. Their worldview. Yes, yes. Post post an atomic war, you know, basically people are going to have to be genetically altered in order to survive in this. And I'm like, man, I want to see a sequel, Planet of the Werewolves. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but but it was really, I'm, when I was a kid, I didn't get it because I just wanted to see the monster. But, 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 but you know, it, it really is a, these guys are real weirdos. I mean, you really don't like them at all. They're very strange guys. Very you, strange. Yeah. You, he's like, do you think these bombs could drop? He's like, yes. Any second. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You're> like, Whoa. <laughs> any second, any yeah. moment, any day. And it's like, <laughs> but the thing is, at the time, I mean, I grew up in that era, duck and cover era. That, that, that was real potent stuff. Wow. And then you get, you know, because of that, this is really, I think it's the first science fictional um, werewolf that's not from a curse. It's not from a gypsy. It's not from drinking out of a paw print. It's not from any of that. It's not from any magic. It's science based werewolf. And that's interesting because it doesn't, uh, because of that, there are things in this movie that you don't really see elsewhere where it doesn't seem like he has to have a full moon to transform. There are times where it looks like he transforms in the daytime. Now, I'm not totally sure if that's the context of the film showing us it's day or if because they shot day for night, it looks lighter than it is. But no, I think I think it was daytime. I mean, the, the film implies that like the Hulk, when he gets stressed out, he right. turns into the werewolf. So. Which is, and that's a super cool thing. And 
I did a little bit of research about werewolves in general for this episode, and it's interesting because like all other you know creatures that we we love to watch on the screen and read in books, the mythos there's a, a common accepted mythos at least in modern times, but then there's all this other crazy stuff. So like some werewolf transformations in lore are permanent, some are temporary, some are by the moon, some are by anxiety, some are all you have to do is put on a wolf pelt, some are all you have to do is put on a wolf belt. Yeah, I even read one that said um, that some German um, lore is that if you just say a werewolf's name or his Christian name three times, it cures him. And there was another one. There was a Danish one that if you just merely scold the werewolf, it will turn back into a human. Can you imagine that at the end of any werewolf movie that you've seen? Hey, hey cut that shit out. Knock that off. In hey werewolf, boy. Amer- yeah. Bad dog. Bad dog. Go to the your bed. American werewolf in London. She's like walking down that alleyway and he snarls at her and she's like, David, no. No. <laughs> oh, or if you've ever seen the movie Wolves Among Us. Mm-hmm. And it's like, if you have a unibrow, you're a werewolf. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's a big one. That's a big one. But this is this movie, The Werewolf, is cool because it, it does a lot of stuff. At the end, spoiler alert, at the end, they shoot him with normal bullets. And it's not, it, you oh, know, yeah, it, not it's, silver it doesn't bullets, have to be a whole not, thing. Yeah. But I think that, huh. again, helps it because that pacing, it's so boom, boom, boom. I feel like it has a very um, Kurt Connors from Spider-Man mythos vibe where you kind of relate to this science. Well, I mean, he's not the scientist in this case, but... He has this thing, the science experiment that's turned him into this. He doesn't want to be like that. And you feel for him. And the actor, he was a guy, I think his name was Stephen Rich. This was actually his first movie. And I got to give him a lot of credit for bringing a lot to what most people might not think was a serious role. Because you feel like you see him cowering in a pipe that he's been hiding in. And he realizes he doesn't have his shoes. And like... I felt for him. I was like, yeah. oh, damn, that guy's got a shitty situation. Yeah. He realizes that he was out being a werewolf. And like, I think that that was such a, a, a I mean, he, he says it out loud what most people would just be thinking, but it tells us exactly how he felt. He's like, I thought it was a dream. Oh, right. no, I thought it was a dream. And that's, I thought that that was a really cool way to show that. Yeah, well, he that guy really committed to the role. I mean, I got to hand it to him. I don't know if he was a theater actor or what. I don't know if he wanted to do anything else, but he, he, he was all in on the werewolf. That's for sure. That was just, yeah, that was his first. So uh, we're talking, this is 1956. That's pretty good. Uh, the 50s had a, uh, kind of brought at least the modern conception of werewolf to American audiences in force. But I don't think we really got into some really baller werewolf movies yeah. until the 80s. And there was one that you referenced by name, Mr. Dixon. Uh, you want to yeah. lead us into that, though, in 1981? The Howling. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, I remember uh, seeing it when it first came out at the theater, and uh, it was really, uh, it was a scary movie. It was mm-hmm. really a, oppressive, a lot of dread. It was very claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then again, it takes place in a world I recognized. You know, it takes place in a real world. Uh, not that I went to peep shows or anything, but the opening, <laughs> the, opening in the, the opening in the porno, the peep show, this little closet, peep show closet. Yes. It, is a, it, it, it was really effective, very frightening scene. I think that's the scariest part in the whole movie. And this is another movie that does a good job of having a subplot of, you know, you have this this reporter is is trying to figure out and understand this killer or this killer who's obsessed with her. And has like there's werewolf stuff that happens because and, and intermixed in that. But it has this whole other dread and suspense element weaved throughout that really doesn't even have to do with the werewolf plot, which is and I think it does that super, super well. And this is Joe Dante directing. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it's it's very noir. Like in a sense, you have the reporter and you have sure. the investigation side of it, and the very grittiness of the city. Like the the environments they're in are very much uh, feel very real. They're very gritty. They're very realized, and it feels like people are living there. And that's something that you know you saw in a lot of noir films. And I think that that genre and that style really feeds well to werewolves because it sort of mirrors you know, what, what the animal's doing versus mm. what we're doing. I think it's, it's a really interesting way to, to tackle it. What was your introduction to this specific movie, Mr. Dixon? Well, I just saw it, you know, when it first came out. Uh, and I was aware of, uh, I think I was more aware of John Sayles at the time than I was of Joe Dante. Oh. And, uh, it seemed like, you know, uh, something that was a werewolf movie. I wanted to see it. I heard good things about it. And uh, I liked it. But, you know, the thing is, is that, it's weird watching it as an adult the first time and then watching it. I watched it probably I watched it in October uh, again as an adult. <laughs> yeah. Still an adult. I'm not sure <laughs> to that yet. I didn't like it as much because um, there was too much comedy in it. I mean, I don't mind humor in a story like this, but it crossed the line into comedy too many times. There were all uh, these moments throughout the entire film where it's like alluding to, haha, werewolves, haha, right. werewolves. Like even yeah. the cartoons they're watching on TV are like wolf cartoons. And sometimes I was like, oh, clever. And then you're like, okay, I get it. Uh, oh, okay. Well, it winks, yeah, yeah. It winks at the after, audience after a lot. The, yeah, after the third appearance of Wolf Chili, it's like, I get it. Right, yeah. I, get it. <laughs> <laughs> I will, you know, it, 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 it was trying to be clever, and I think it succeeds in a lot of stuff. The one thing that I did think was pretty cool was there is a news reporter in um, in this movie whose name is Lou Landers, and he yeah. is also in Gremlins as the same character. Oh, so wow. Gremlins is another Joe Dante pick, right? So technically oh. that happens in the same universe. How cool is that? Wow. The, the news a few weeks later would be crazy though like in, in other news uh one of our anchors turned into a werewolf on live tv and a town was overrun by little green gremlins well, i guess it, it gives it gives precedence and credence though like if you're a news reporter and you've already covered this werewolf story if yeah. you're like all right now in another town these gremlins are killing these people you're like all right well you were right you were right about the werewolf <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, you know, you know, Dante, there was a lot of continuity in Dante films because he used the same actors over and over again. Sure, There's sure. Miller and Ken Toby and guys like that. So now, when this, you, one, this one is a good one. And I feel like it's interesting because it gets eclipsed a lot by American Werewolf in London, which was oh, released yeah. in the same year. And we actually are uh, buddies with Steve Johnson, who worked on the effects in The Howling. The effects in The Howling were done by a special effects guy named Rob Bottin, who is, I mean, just a special effects god. And he was actually working with Rick Baker on the American Werewolf in London, left to do the Howling, and the Howling kind of got released first. So a lot of people, uh, Steve Johnson was, to remember Steve when Steve was on our episode, if you guys haven't listened to the episode where we interviewed Steve Johnson, definitely go check it out. There's a lot of fun movie tidbits and stories in there. And also Steve Johnson is quite a character. Yeah, he's a cool guy. But uh, he was telling us about how... There was, you know, basically werewolf fans were kind of split into two camps of the Howling and American Werewolf in London, of which one had the better effects and who created what effects. But I think Steve Johnson at least said it was mostly Rick's ideas and yeah. uh, Botine had kind of taken some of those ideas over to the Howling. The Howling is great because I, those designs are so cool, yes. right? They're so tall, anthropomorphic. 
I like I kind of like the bunny ears. What do you guys think about the bunny ears? <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, weren't they inspired by Bernie Wrightson, the comic book artist? Yes, I, yes. If, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Bernie actually provide drawings for the Howling? I, I, Ooh, I think I remember that. That's interesting. I trust you more than me with that, but I'll check that out. I'll have to look yeah. into that because I know he designed a lot of stuff for Silver Bullet and a lot of uh, yeah. Bernie Wrightson did a lot of werewolf designs for Stephen King projects um, and and some unreleased Stephen King projects that he was working on. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised because he did do a lot of film concept work, uh, especially in the 80s. And that would have been that would have been amazing if yeah. he had done some uh, some werewolf stuff for the howling. I, I'm always torn on the bunny ears, but I do love in this movie that it's not just one werewolf. Like for most werewolf sure. movies, it's one guy. And this one at the end, it's like, boom, like 30 of them. Clawing through the with stop motion, David at, from David Allen. Yeah, which is through the usually barn. great, but it's just so out of place in that movie. And I, <laughs> they, like, they're like, like you know, full 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 size practical effects, full size practical effects, also some miniature stop motion. You're like, wait, what? Yeah. Which is funny because the same thing happens in Gremlins. Yeah, the I know. same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the bunny ears, Mr. Dixon? You like your werewolf with big, tall bunny ears or yeah, no? I, yeah, I, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good look because it made it different. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it looked unique from any other werewolf. Mm-hmm. Look. And I also like the fact that there were a lot of them. And I also like the fact that they were in like this sort of health, health, self-help guru <laughs> colony. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know? It was so California. Uh, yeah, because they kind of take cool the too. they kind of take the gypsies out of it. Instead of making it a gypsy thing, they kind of make it like a new age hippie kind of yeah. like almost. I don't want to say sex cult, but sex cult. It's a sex cult. Yeah, yeah. As, as it turns out, yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, I I really enjoyed this movie, and I I actually was pretty late to the game seeing it. It wasn't until probably five years ago that I first see it for the first time. Really? That late? Because I started oh. watching it in college and was like, no werewolves, turn it off. Dude, I wouldn't have lived, uh, Mr. Dixon, Aaron and I used to live together. I wouldn't have lived with you. I wouldn't have let you into the apartment if I didn't know that you had at least seen it. You didn't have to like it. No, but. no, no. I tried to watch it and was like, the werewolves are not here and I'm about 45 minutes in and I'm That out. sounds like you for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so then, you know, I probably skipped to the part where you see him transform for the first time. And like the bladder effects were pretty dated for me and I didn't appreciate it. But I can see that going back. It's like you're like, that's pretty cool now. Once you see the full effect of it and once you watch the entire movie, it fits and it works. But like yeah. I saw American Werewolf in London first and it's like, whoa, that's how you do it. Well, yeah. And I think that that the, the, it's very hard to compare any werewolf movie against American Werewolf because they just did it so good. But and I was specifically going to bring up the the bladder effects. You have Robert Picardo, who's an amazing character actor playing Eddie Quist, who's the 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 serial killer slash stalker slash werewolf in this movie. He does a great job. And then there's this one really prolonged uh, transformation sequences where they use latex bladders to pop his skin all over the place. And it really is different than American Werewolf. It's not like they're trying to rip it off or vice versa. So I like that it's different. And they they don't shy away from it. They show it. I'm on board. I really like I like that transformation scene. I definitely rank it under American Werewolf in London, but I still think it's it's super, super effective. What do you think, Mr. Dixon? It was super effective when that film came out. I mean, everybody mm. was talking about it. It was the reason why people, you know, word of mouth, people said, you got to go see this movie. You, you can't believe the effects. You know, now they look incredibly dated and you can see right through them to see how they did them. Yeah. But back then, it was you know super super effective on the big screen. Now, did you see American Werewolf in London the same year? Like, was that a few weeks later? Were you like, I'm werewolfed out. I'm good. <laughs> I I think I saw it um, like a couple of years later on cable. Oh wow! Yeah. So you even skipped yeah. it, man. Yeah, because I, yeah. I I would love to know who like went and saw that like back to back like that. Like, 
saw it and then a few months later the next one comes out and like what that opinion was and you're like hmm cute werewolf movie but uh the howling man that was pretty awesome but now as time has gone by it's kind of swapped which one has been considered the better werewolf movie i I think technically and stuff like that yeah i gotta give it to american werewolf it's more of an a picture yeah but yeah i I still have a lot of affection for the howling howling it's so it's so grindhouse have you seen any of the sequels yeah no, I, I I think I tried the Australian one and gave up. That's three marsupials. It's yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're kangaroos. I was like, I'll give that a try. It's no. like an interesting. <laughs> we, uh, we do a we do a thing every Sunday night called Shitty Movie Sunday, where a bunch of friends come over and we just mystery science theater. It's good canon. I just watched the fourth one, Howling Four, last night for the first time. You could skip all of it. I mean, Steve Johnson did the effects, and the werewolf that you see for thirty seconds looks really cool. But the movie, oh it's god. basically a retread of the first one, which is, yeah. and it, but it's just terrible. Oh my god! I haven't. I don't think I've seen after four, but there's at least six, and then they start getting into like rebirth and new beginning, and then a reboot, <laughs> and it's like I don't know, man. I love me some werewolves, but <laughs> well, fool me five times. What's this? Is it uh, Howling Two? Your sister is a, a werewolf. werewolf. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that one was a little tongue in cheek, and that's more like. Uh, any of our 14 or 15 year old oh. listeners who love werewolves as well as breasts, definitely check that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the move. That's the audience that that movie was shooting for. That was um, like the porkies. Is of it werewolf Christopher movies? Lee in that one? Probably. I think uh, Christopher Lee is in the sequel. Oh man, um, oh my God. it's poor man. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is definitely something else. Mr. Dixon, were, were you ever a Hammer horror fan, or were you a Universal guy? Uh, no, I liked both. I like if they had monsters in it, I liked it. Yeah, and yeah I, I was into the Hammer stuff. It was um, it was harder to see that stuff when I was a kid because they wouldn't put it in Saturday matinees generally because it was too bloody. Oh, and they were interesting. They were always so they were always so fast play. They'd only be in the theater for a week and gone, you know, because oh. they were road showing them. They they, you know, they they weren't blanket releases. So and then on TV they were so chopped uh, to pieces that they weren't worth watching. Wow. So, you know, I kind of caught up with them, really caught up with them, you know, later on when, you know, when you could watch them on video. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I had to start doing it once, once I could get them on DVD, it was very hard to find them, but you always saw the bitch in pictures of, you know, the curse of the werewolf and he is this big silver werewolf with the, the, the fangs. It was like, it looked awesome, but it wasn't until much later I was able to even see it. Yeah. Cause I mean, when in our town growing up, we had a great grindhouse theater. It was always triple bills. For some reason, they didn't get Hammer films very much. So even in late 60s, early 70s, I wasn't able to catch up with them. Just like your comic work, we can continue to do this all day long. Um, <laughs> but let me ask you, we'll start to wrap it up a little bit. Sure. Do you, if you feel like sharing, do you have any werewolf uh, ideas, stories? Do you have anything bouncing around in your head as a creator that you think would be cool? Whether it was maybe your take on something that's been done or something that you think hasn't been done before? Not really. I mean, I recently did a graphic novel, a werewolf graphic novel based on a movie treatment. I mean, I did it for the producers of the movie who wanted a graphic novel, but uh, I have my, I myself have not done that much werewolf stuff. And quite honestly, no, I don't have a werewolf story kicking around in my head. Sometimes there's things you reserve just to enjoy and then you don't want to get involved <laughs> with creative. Sure, so like sure. I, resi- I resisted for years writing any Star Wars comics. Oh, wow. And I finally, finally agreed the right one because I just didn't want to think of that franchise that way sure sure a little general grievous action right (laughs) yeah yeah well and i know you did some uh nightmare on elm street comics too which i'm a huge fredhead was 
was that another one that was kind of hard to dive into or or were you already a fan enough to be able to write that that comic no no it wasn't hard to dive into at all in fact uh early on they gave me my choice of the three new line properties and i said it's freddy or nothing i don't i'm not interested in the other two that's the right choice that's the right choice because there's something there's something cerebral about freddy that i I really like and and the strange thing is is that when when nightmare on elm street had a comic at marvel yeah. Uh, back in the in the I think early '90s, and it got canceled. I was writing the final story, uh, and it got canceled. They called me on the phone and said, "Stop writing." Uh-huh. <laughs> we we canceled because they got all kinds of pushback from the Catholic Church on on and and Catholics in general on an issue they did, and they canceled <laughs> the book. And, and when I got hired by when I got hired by Wildstorm to do it. I just used that same story. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but I, I liked writing. In fact, I was the only guy writing those New Line books who never got any notes back from the producers. Wow. Everybody, everybody else had to do rewrites and rewrites and rewrites. And they were like, no, no, he's got it. He got it. He, he understands it. That's amazing because so. I, I do think that a lot of people don't get Freddy. They're like, oh, he's Magic Dreams. And it's like, yeah, but there's more to it than that. And no, no, there's so no, much there's more to it than that. Yeah, there's a lot more. I mean, those those stories are that that whole concept is so freaking creepy. There's 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 no end to what you can do with it. Oh man! And you were taking it to some fun places. I think it lasted like what eight or eight, eight issues or so at Wildstorm. Yeah. yeah. It looked like there was some fun stuff that you that you had in store. So. Uh, yeah, I was laying I was laying groundwork for future stories, but it just didn't happen. Oh man, didn't I, happen yeah, yet. Didn't yeah, happen yet. I would love to there see. There you go. <laughs> I would love to see that come back because I'm such a huge redhead, and I just wish the movies kept going. Um, I mean, it's like you've already made the worst film. Just keep making movies and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, like you're already hit the low point. You can only do better than this. So let's just keep going. Um, I'm well, actually, and I just, I, I would love to see more comics, more films, whatever you got. Well, let me give you. I'll put a pitch out there, uh, both for Mr. Dixon and Aaron. And whichever one of you is a, a really good comics book writer, if you want to take the idea and run with it, you can. <laughs> uh, you had in the 90s, we had Wolf Cap, where Captain America, through science, turned into a werewolf. Ooh. There's nothing saying that that serum doesn't still in- exist and we could do a little retcon and maybe give it to a certain Frank Castle. Ooh. Just saying. Yeah. Just yeah. saying. I like that. I like that. You could. We, uh, so we have a running gag on our show where when we say something like that that we think is brilliant... We'll be like, don't steal our idea. But in this case, Mr. Dixon, please take that idea. <laughs> run with you it. can steal any of those yeah, ideas. steal the shit out of it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to do a story where Frank gets bit by a werewolf. The first full moon, he turns into a werewolf and then just turns back into Frank Castle and just goes what the werewolf was going to do anyway. Just goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no agenda change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be super cool. You did write uh, Van Helsing versus the Wolfman. Is that yeah? Van Helsing versus the Werewolf or Xenoscope? Yeah, yeah. Was was that pretty much the only werewolf property you got to write? Yeah, other than this recent graphic novel, I can't think of anything I've done with werewolves Man. as much as I love them. Did the recent so, graphic novel get released or is it not released? No, no, and it may never get. It's one. A lot of times, uh, producers will come to you and say, "We want to turn this treatment into a graphic novel so we can show it to investors and things like that." And a lot of those never see the light of day. I mean, I assume they're going to publish this, but I have no idea when. I, I've only recently seen artwork from it, so it's still in production. Who's doing the art? I don't remember the guy's name. I know Brett Smith is the guy, a uh, buddy of mine, who set up the deal and is doing the coloring. The book looks gorgeous. All right. I honestly can't remember who's who drew it. 
Yeah, I'd love to see more werewolf stuff. I mean, I, I think we have the technology to do them better and do them cooler. But at the end of the day, it's like after you watch a, a low budge thing like The Werewolf uh, and, and you realize like it doesn't need to be much, mm. even if it is kind of cheesy, there's something really cool about a good werewolf movie with a solid story. Even when you're watching The Howling and even for some of its shortcomings, that's a badass movie Yeah, and has yeah. an incredible ending. Like that ending is one of the best werewolf movie endings you could have when there's a bunch yeah. of them and they don't defeat them they just drive away and then it's like oh shit that's not the ending the Pekingese werewolf yeah, on, uh, yeah on tv although that, I, I wish that looked a little bit scarier but it still works for what it is yeah yeah it's the, the cutest werewolf in the cinema yeah <laughs> <laughs> Matt and I were playing this game uh, on a different podcast the other day where we were talking about like the day after, like what would happen the day after something happened in a movie. And one of the ones that I, I keep thinking about is the howling. And it's like the day after when somebody writes into that uh, that TV station, they're like, my son was watching the news with me and you put a werewolf on the air and I disapprove <laughs> completely. And I had to put it into context and I disapprove. I am not watching Channel 6 ever again. <laughs> I, I, I can see the meeting the next day. Like, did you see the ratings last night? <laughs> yeah, it turns into like that. It turns into network, but with werewolves. Yeah. <laughs> the werewolf news network. There you go. Yeah. And at six, we have our wolf report. It's like, put it in her contract. She has to transform into a werewolf every night. <laughs> we'll have the weather wolf. We'll have wolf on the streets. It'll be great. <laughs> She's like shuffling papers on the distance. She, in other notes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, this has been fun. Uh, Chuck, can, do you want to plug anything? Is there anything our listeners should keep an eye out for? Where where can people keep up with you? Uh, Amazon, mostly. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I write novels as well. I do have a vampire horror novel called Blooded. Uh, it's available through Amazon and uh, my Levon Cade series and uh, Bad Times science fiction series are also available through Amazon. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah. So look up Chuck Dixon on Amazon. You going to be appearing at any cons or any gatherings or anything in the future? Uh, mostly just in Florida. I'm, I'm here in Tampa, Florida. So I'll be at the Clearwater Library Show and I'll be at Sci-Fi Bartow, which is an entire town shut down and turned into a geek fest for a day. Uh, that happens in, uh, I believe, March. Nice. In yeah, it's a while. 10,000 people showed up last year. It's crazy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 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 I saw so many Rick Grimeses on the street. But I thought, wow, there's a lot of police protection here. But they, I realized they all had hatches. <laughs> well, do you, I don't know if you know this, but I work for The Walking Dead. I, I'm, I'm the VF, oh, wow. I'm the VFX supervisor for The Walking Dead. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I got to, I got to give Rick a huge send off this year. It was a lot of fun. Wow! Wow! Well, well, kudos to you. That's awesome. You're Thank better you. at eradicating the zombies than Rick would be, then, huh? <laughs> <laughs> With a really, you could just hit a couple keys and there'd be no more zombies. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> all it takes. I just hit the kill button and that's it. <laughs> well, maybe we will talk about uh, zombies at another point with you, Mr. Dixon. This has been spectacular. Yeah, it really went well, man. I, I it's always, I mean, it's a lot of fun to bring on guests, but you particularly fit the bill and and just i mean it was so much fun to just talk werewolves with you but like matt said we you could come back and talk batman talk punisher any of oh, your yeah. comic i wasn't even thinking about all the comic like the amazing comics you've yeah. done which we'd love to have you on for another thing but we're we're both horror and comic book guys so we could talk about any of this stuff all day every day 
Yeah, so well, much fun. Any, anytime. Have me back. Keep me on the Rolodex. You so. got it. Oh, we definitely will. And guys, you can keep up with us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod and on our website, LaunchpadPod.com. Matt, you want to blast this thing off? I think this is pretty yeah, good. Uh, Mr. Dixon, we have a secret handshake that we do that nobody can see what we're doing, but it's a it's a high five that turns into a rocket ship and blasts off. So we're about to do the the rocketeer handshake. You and you have this? to make you have to blow a raspberry as <laughs> as the rocket ship blasts, blasts off, off. You blow a raspberry. So if you would like to to join us over the internet airwaves, you put your hand sideways, and then when we say go, we'll high five and then blast off together. You ready? With a raspberry. All right. All right. Ready? Three, Set. two, one. Whoops. <laughs> there it is. All right, guys. We've been the Rocketeers, and we are out. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.